Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director, James Conlon, explores Lucia de Lammermoor, the story, its history, and of course, the music. See LA Opera's Lucia de Lammermoor at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from September 17th through October 9. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hello and welcome. I'm James Conlon, music director of Los Angeles Opera. Following tradition, I'm going to speak to you about the opera you are about to hear and see. I have also written an article to accompany that, and it is called Lucia di Lamamor, a refracted light of her time and ours. Why do we need Lucia di Lamamor, her tragic story and her dark and dreary Scottish castle? Gloom notwithstanding, it is the most popular opera by Gaetano Donizetti, who lived from 1797 to 1848. It has never left the world stage since its premiere in 1835. A prejudice of our time suggests that only works that are interesting are those by revolutionary composers, those who changed music by completely or partially breaking with tradition, or who pushed their genre toward a markedly new stage of development. And yet, Donizetti, whose legacy has endured, wrote completely within the formal framework of the Italian operatic tradition as he received it, without demonstrating any apparent dissonance between that tradition and himself. Music is sometimes a combination of distinctions between expression in the moment and reflection on sometimes remote recalled emotions. There is a large distance between the reflective nature of, for example, the songs of Franz Schubert and Robert Schumann express melancholy, sentimental longing, and the directness and apparent spontaneous nature of the bel canto composers, which include Donizetti, along with Giochino Rossini, 1792 to 1868, and Vincenzo Bellini, 1801-1835, which neither comments on itself nor the composers' selves from a subjective, reflective position. Of Donizetti's 70 operas, 61 are melodramas or tragedies. He succeeded Rossini as the next great exponent of the melodrama in the first half of the 19th century. By the time Donizetti died in 1848, Giuseppe Verdi, 1813-1901, had taken up the mantle and would gradually elevate the operatic form through his constant modification of the bel canto forms to its completion. He subsequently surpassed it to create the zenith of Italian opera. Through the alchemy of his music, Donizetti transformed Sir Walter Scott's cold, melancholy Scotland into a hotbed of Mediterranean passion. Scotland, the wild north, was to England and continental Europe what the wild west was to North Americans. It was perceived as a remote and barbaric, fascinating and terrifying place, a perfect backdrop for mad passion 
or passionate madness. Like most composers, Donizetti was attracted to what was in a story that would translate well into his music and appeal to his muse. The so-called romantic elements for an opera were a priority. First, it required a distribution of vocal roles according to convention, a soprano and tenor in love destined for tragedy, a baritone, in this case, the domineering brother of the soprano who opposes that love, and a bass who represents authority or age, in this case, a minister and spiritual guide. The setting in a remote century, early 18th century, and country, Scotland, conforms with contemporary convention. That the subject was based on flawed and inaccurate history was of little importance to Donizetti, as long as the plot could serve a necklace-like succession of scenes following conventional dictates that could be strung together. Hundreds of such operas were written. A fraction have survived. One of the most frequently discussed passages in Lucia is the so-called mad scene. In 2005, I wrote the preface to a book entitled La Folie à l'Opéra, Madness in Opera, written by three French authors, two of whom were psychologist-musicologist. It took an intriguing tour through the subject, from the Baroque era to the present day. This book came to mind as I revisited Lucia di Lammermoor. The authors cautioned that the term mad or crazed should not be understood as a clinical state, but rather should be applied to individuals who have been profoundly estranged from their social environment. The point of departure for my preface was that music, which exists on the borderline between transcendence and concrete reality, was exceptionally well served by its proximity to fantasy. Music both inspires and is inspired by fantasy. In the classical period, piano fantasies emerged from the boundaries of stricter rigorous compositional forms, the sonata, the fugue, theme and variations, or liturgical music, into an acceptable and apparent formlessness, one that afforded the composer an opportunity to break free of formal restraints. In fact, so-called mad sopranos were in fashion in the early 19th century. By the time Donizetti composed Lucia, he had created three mad scenes already, including one in Anna Bolena, and subsequently was to write two more. In an irony worthy of Alexander Pushkin, whose Eugene Onegin dies in a duel, foreshadowing the author's own death, Donizetti would suffer from mental derangement in his final years, expiring in a state of psychosis. Did Donizetti think a lot about the sociological relevance of his opera? I doubt it, but we can easily see its power to address the core of the tragedy and to a subject which should still prompt moral outrage today. The plight of Lucia is that of a young woman forced into an unwanted marriage while prevented from marrying the man of her choice. She is, of course, a victim of a society which used its daughters and sons as commerce, pawns to be traded for the social, financial, or political advancement 
of certain privileged families. Lucia and her passion-inspired madness became influential in literature, taking on lives of their own. Significant passages about the opera and its heroine appear, for instance, in Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, 1856, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, 1877, and E.M. Forster's Where Angels Fear to Tread, 1905. Now, why is that? Is it because, as well as victim, she is a heroine of self-determination? In fact, she resembles the biblical Judith, who executes Holofernes, saving herself and her people. Judith murders, but her lawyers need not plead insanity. She can be seen as an avenging angel of one of society's fundamental sins. Much of the modern world condemns forced marriage and judges it a violation against our modern concept of human rights. It finds as unacceptable the idea that society can prevent individuals from marrying each other who wish to do so. Turn on the television, open any newspaper, or check social media if you think Lucia's plight and story lacks contemporary relevance. While recognizing that these sociological issues might not be on Donizetti's mind, Lucia di Lamamor speaks to our time. That it does so hardly changes the fact that the opera's raison d'etre was its melodramatic plot and its ideal vehicle for the compositional grace of Gaetano Donizetti. Let's look now how Lucia exemplifies and demonstrates the typical structure of a bel canto opera, and also why, in its totally conventional way, it rose to international appreciation and popularity. I want to show you with a few examples how an Italian opera of the first half of the 19th century is constructed. It consists of a few elements used multiple times to build the whole, just as walls, floors, ceilings, doors, and staircases comprise a house, solo arias, duets, trios, choruses, and concerted pieces make up the whole of an opera. The basic unit is a scene, or scena, which is a fairly strict form that flexibly fits many dramatic situations. Musically, it features built-in variety and could be used as many times as the composer chose in building acts. For instance, Lucia's first act basically consists of three successive shenas. It is a logical extension of dramatic theater works. Only there is a definite musical form. You may have heard operas built this way without even noticing. Now I want you to notice. A scene, or shena, usually starts with a slow introduction for orchestra. Then a leading character, a protagonist, either soliloquizes or converses briefly with a friend or companion in a form called recitative, derived from the same word recite, which simply means that the words, which are of course sung, take precedence over melody and harmony. It will set up the first part, a comparatively slow song called an aria or air. The slow first part is usually poetic and favors beautiful melody and harmony. 
it serves as a vehicle for the singer to display a presumably beautiful voice with mellifluous and elegant phrasing. There is a short intermediate movement called the tempo di mezzo. It prepares the terrain for a contrasting, brilliant, and often rhythmically energized cabaletta. The origin of this name relates to the Italian word for horse. This features vocal acrobatics, fireworks, high notes, and vehemence that all demonstrate the singer's agility. It is often repeated for a second time with variations. And finally, a stretta, an intense bolt to the finish line, all of which provokes the applause of the public and might become known as an exit aria, one which closes the scena, nurtures the public's enthusiasm, and ensures the prima donna, or primo uomo's success. An opera of this period might feature several of these scenas in a row until the act is completed. Lucia, in fact, has a half a dozen of them. A romantic opera obviously requires romance, with the attendant yearning, ecstasies, agony, exhilaration, and desperation. Those are the emotional ingredients which are poured into the structure. With the romantic attraction of the protagonist, there must be obstacles, whether circumstances or in the form of other characters. We recognize who's who, even without familiarity with the particulars of the plot. By now, you know the routine. The soprano and tenor love each other, and the baritone will try to prevent their union. An older authority figure, usually a bass, accompanies the action. Based on a true story, but richly developed by Sir Walter Scott and Donizetti's librettist Salvatore Camarano, Lucia di Lammermoor loves Edgardo of Ravenswood. Her brother, Enrico, has planned another politically advantageous husband for her, and who, in his way, is the villain of the opera. The minister Raimondo is well-meaning, but is ultimately ineffective in preventing the tragedy. Now we add a few more standard features and the opera is ready to start. Lucia di Lammermoor begins with a short, slow prelude, setting the tone in the dark and gloomy Scottish landscape. It is not the brilliant symphonic overture similar to those in the earlier operas by Rossini, the great master of the overture. But Rossini had long since rejected them as useless entertainment and led the path instead to the shorter prelude, which sets up the first scene. Donizetti and Verdi would ultimately follow on that path. Listen to the short but deeply expressive prelude.
By convention, the first piece in the opera is a chorus, often, as it is in Lucia, a men's chorus. It provides immediate contrast with the slow prelude. Remember that contrast of fast and slow, loud and soft, reflective and dynamic, is a constant in the bel canto operas. Enrico, Lucia's scheming brother, will now have his Shena complete with all the required movements and mood changes, which I enumerated earlier. As is often the case, it is augmented by a men's chorus. Then we meet Lucia. The orchestra introduces her by featuring a harp solo, an instrument often associated with the leading woman in the cast. It provides maximum contrast after the rather raucous previous scene. For the musical excerpts, I have chosen two of the greatest Lucias of their time, if not all time, Maria Callas and Dame Joan Sutherland. Lucia converses in the obligatory recitative with her companion, Aliza, setting the scene and giving us some very important background information. It is duly followed by the slow movement of her aria, the first of many musical high points.
This is followed by the faster tempo di mezzo and then the rapid cabaletta. and a second verse of the Cabaletta, ornamented and varied. ending, a high note, and applause. And the Shana is complete. And we start all over with the same process. Now there are two characters, so it's a duet. Lucia and her beloved, the tenor Edgardo. The dramatic material is new, but the form is the same. Introduction, recitative, then the slow movement. Sulla tomba. Serra il tradito genitore col tuo sangue eterna guerra io giurai nel mio furore Now the connective passage the so-called tempo di mezzo And then the fast cabaletta. Now it is sung by two characters, and the repetition of that reinforces it in our memories. And you will want to remember the melody because it will recur later in Lucia's famous mad scene. Once again, a brilliant ending 
and an exit. And that's the end of Act One. The process will continue forward. Each Shena will give you an opportunity to delve more deeply into the form which you now understand. Introduction, slow recitative, slow movement, faster connective passage, fast cabaletta with variations and ornaments. Often, in the middle of an opera, the composer and librettist will find a device to bring all of the leading characters and the chorus onto the stage in an often confrontational situation, a point at which the forward motion of the plot is stopped by circumstances. It is a dramatic stalemate. The action is unable to go backwards or forwards. And so everything stands still. A static dramatic situation provides an ideal opportunity to bring all of the voices together in a powerful musical moment, creating a climax. Because of its immobility, it might resemble a concert, and so it is called the concertato. And here is one of the crowning moments of Lucia. At the central climactic moment of the opera, with all of the wedding guests assembled on stage to witness Lucia's marriage to the man her brother has imposed on her, Edgardo, her apparently rejected and enraged beloved, barges into the ceremony. At this point, Donizetti wrote the sextet for six solo voices and chorus. Its great beauty has conquered the world, and so it is famously known as the sextet from Lucia di Lammermoor. It has two sections. and an equally exquisite ending.
plot thickens and takes a shocking turn. Lucia murders her husband in the nuptial bed. Now, for anyone who feels that this is perhaps barely credible or is too much, as with many other operatic plots, it's good to know that Sir Walter Scott based the original novel on a true story that he had heard recounted by his mother and aunt. The so-called mad scene, as we discussed, was fashionable at the time, and here Donizetti provides his greatest example. It is, in fact, a Shana, with some richly developed variation. The composer employed a rare musical instrument to accompany Lucia through her delusional final scene, the glass harmonica. First popularized by the Irish musician Richard Pockridge in the 1740s, Gluck played a similar instrument, and Handel, Mozart, Beethoven, and Richard Strauss all composed for it. Benjamin Franklin created his own version of it, which can be seen today at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. In recent years, this instrument has enjoyed a revival of interest by contemporary composers. Donizetti's use of the glass harmonica is virtually unique in opera. Significantly, and doubtlessly at the root of the composer's decision to use it, was that the device was alleged, without any scientific proof, to cause madness in those exposed to it, both musicians and audiences. Subsequent hypotheses suggest that those who played the glass harmonica may have suffered from lead poisoning caused by the moistening of their thumb and rubbing it against the glass, which produces the sound. This may have prompted Donizetti to use the glass harmonica in Lucia's mad scene. It seems his original intent was thwarted when the most competent player at the time refused to play at the Teatro San Carlo, alleging that the theater had never paid him for his services on a previous occasion. The composer transferred the extensive cadenzas to the flute, there to remain until recent decades when, in the spirit of historical accuracy, the use of the glass harmonica has come back. First, a scene-setting introduction and a slow first movement, and the glass harmonica. That was with the glass harmonica, and now here it is with the flute.
Before this movement finishes, it is worth playing a little bit of the cadenza, which became a traditional addition long after Donizetti's death. In these two short excerpts, it is a duet for soprano and flute, substituting for the glass harmonica. Once again, we will hear Maria Callas and Joan Sutherland, whose interpretations are almost polar opposites. First, Maria Callas. And now, Dame Joan Sutherland. Cabaletta, as it should, must follow next. And Lucia exits on a high note, literally and figuratively. Lucia will expire off stage. Now, conventionally, 18th century operas end with the death of the soprano. But there are still loose ends left. The fate of Edgardo. Lucia's forlorn lover needs a tragic Shena, and Donizetti accomplishes the extraordinary. He surpasses even the mad scene with a perfect Shena. Introduction, recitative, and slow aria for sorrowful Edgardo.
There is a tempo di mezzo in which the body of Lucia is brought to its burial place, and this provokes Edgardo to take his own life. Shades of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, the tragedy similar being played out in a family cemetery. An anecdote recounts that Donizetti wrote this while taking a short break from a card game. If the story is too good to be true, it probably isn't. Nonetheless, the melodic inspiration is of the highest order. Edgardo ends his scena and his life with high notes to the accompaniment of a thundering orchestra. As we see from both Lucia and Edgardo's deaths, the composer didn't try to portray the dying breath realistically, choosing instead to capture the emotional climax of this cathartic opera. This type of tumultuous ending has become a staple by this time, and it was to persist even into the 20th century. Lucia di Lammermoor justifies itself as a beautiful artifact of its time. It is important because it is not of our time. By being itself, not like ourselves, it serves as a foil and better clarifies us to ourselves. Revolutionary or not, and Lucia isn't, it fulfills its fundamental function as a bel canto opera whose first and overriding obligation is to be a theatrical forum for, by definition, beautiful singing. Beautiful in its design and in its very nature. Like a Beethoven sonata or a Haydn symphony, it is both timeless and of its time and exists independently of any, perhaps irrelevant, discussion of its relevance. On those terms, Lucia di Lammermoor, with its gloomy castle, is hardly irrelevant. It renders our world more beautiful and in a world that needs beauty in all its form more than ever, it is absolutely not expendable. I'm James Codlin, Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. And we all hope to see you at the opera. See LA Opera's Lucia de Lamamor at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from September 17 through October 9. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.